I'm uh, Aaron Keller, I'm an editor at Vashti, and I'm thrilled today to be joined by the renowned author, broadcaster, poet, lecturer, and I'm sure that's not an exhaustive list, Michael Rosen. Nice um, to be here. Yeah. Uh, in 2007, you were uh, appointed the Children's Laureate. That's right? it, yeah. And you said you would like to use the role to be an ambassador of fun. Mm -hmm. And you've more recently, you've criticised the UK's education system for being too sort of oppressively sombre and not valuing the importance of humour in education. Yes. But your most recent book that we're going to discuss today, The Missing, um, I think it's fair to say it's certainly not lighthearted. Um, it's a very sort of poignant family memoir um, where you try and document uh, what happened to missing relatives who were caught up in the horror of the Holocaust. So I guess my first question for you is, what made you decide as a children's author to write about the Holocaust? Yeah, so the various stages to this. Um, let's go back about 30 years or so. And I'm trying to find out what happened to these missing relatives who my dad, when I was growing up, would just refer to, just say, do you know, I had two French uncles and they were there at the beginning of the war and they weren't there at the end. And if you're told that as a kid, it, it's got meaning, but at another level, it really means nothing. How can people just disappear? And let's say you're about 10, and even if you're of Jewish background, of Jewish as I am, and as they are, obviously, then what does it mean? You know, they were, you've got to remember in the 40s and 50s, though we had the Nuremberg trials, they disappeared, culturally speaking. They weren't in the forefront. People didn't talk about the Nuremberg trials. So even though the Holocaust was in many ways well exposed by the Nuremberg trials. They weren't part of daily conversation. You couldn't just refer to it. You didn't have a phrase, the Nuremberg trials. So I had no means of, if you like, describing or understanding what it was he meant, but it niggled at me. And so I thought, how can I put this together? And so this sent me on a big search and I, bit by bit, I found out more and more and more, partly by coincidence, partly by luck, partly by sheer stubbornness, and I found it out. Now, as I was finding out, uh, because I'm a rather gabby sort of person and talk to people, a yachna, as you would say in Yiddish, as my father would call me, uh, I was telling people what I found. Look what I found. Look what I got. Look what I found. And then I started getting called into schools. So suddenly this stuff that is at one level, at a very adult level, I'm suddenly now talking to people, anything from between the ages of 11 and 18, and various sort of uh, penny-dropping moments happened, like when I was in front of a group of sixth formers, and I told the story, and he got, I got to the end, and he said, well, none of this happened, though, did it? So I was face-to-face -face with, obviously, we have the phrase Holocaust denial, but it, that's a very abstract sort of phrase, and also we connect it with a kind of form of Nazism, neo-Nazism, fascism, whatever. But this was very grassrootsy. It was very... And it's an 18-year-old saying it. So where did he get that stuff from? Patong, patong, patong. I'm thinking, I ought to write this stuff down because I can't explain all six million, but I can explain two. And if I can explain two and if somebody else can explain two, then that's part of the explanation for the Holocaust. And then also uh, Professor Alan Weinstein uh, in Cambridge, who runs a thing called History Works, she got me in doing what you might call empathy work. Now, empathy work means working with children where you're, and quite young children, not simply saying this is what happened, but inviting children and young people to explore. And then somewhere along the line there, another penny dropped and said, well, 
why don't I write this stuff down? That's what I do for a living. So went to Walker Books and they said, oh, yes, please. And that's how the book came about. So you say it's sort of one of the early motivating factors was your sort of sense of latent sense of confusion as a child. Mm. In the book, um, sort of early on, it says, right, stories hung in the air about French and Polish great aunts and uncles who were there before the war and weren't after. What happened, I'd ask? Don't know, my family said. So it seems like this sort of confusion is a bit of a motivating factor. And then later on, you have this sort of, you know, you're presented with a, with a young adult who's in denial about it. And those yes. two sort of factors are quite... Yes. And the advantage of thinking about what you're like as a child, if you, if you write for young people, I mean, whether it's young adult stuff or, or for very young children, two-year-olds, which I occasionally write for, is that part of the way you do it is to turn yourself inside out. So you remember what it felt like to be a child and to read or to be read to. And using that memory, that enables you to frame things and to phrase things. And also, it kind of gives you a motive as well, because you, you, you've, you find that you want to talk to the child you were. That person was, it used a lovely word, you said confused. I was. I mean, what did it mean to disappear? And then I'd added in, which I haven't put in the book, uh, in 1957, we went to Germany and we were in East Germany in Weimar. Mm. And every day, my parents worked in the morning with te other teachers. They were teachers. And then in the afternoon, we had to go on these little tourist trips. And so, you know, in Germany or anywhere, of course, they want to take to the historic places. So we went to the house of Goethe, the Goethe house, Bach's house, all this stuff. And of course, me and my brother were getting really fed up, mucking about and causing all sorts of trouble. And, um, and then one day, my mum, I'm sure my dad said the same thing, but I can see my mum's face saying, we've got a visit today and I'm afraid you can't come. And so we said, well, that's funny because the parents were very kind of forthright and so on. And they said, yes, we're going to this place called Buchenwald. Mm. And what's that? You know, not, not sensing the gravity of it at all. And mum said, well, it's this terrible place um, and uh, we're going to go. So they went. And then when mum came back, I could see that she was unbelievably affected it was a way in which she, she had quite sort of dark skin in relation to mine. And I could see sort of these like sort of looks under her eyes. And I said, uh, what, what happened? She said, it was just a, t it's a terrible, terrible place where they kill people. They tortured people and so on. Jews tortured most of it, but all sorts. And, and I remember all that I could think of and as a 10 year old, right? This is not me now. As a 10 year old was the Tower of London, because in the Tower of London, there's this torture room that, believe it or not, they used to take, I mean, it's still there. They used to take kids too when you were 10, 11 on a school trip. And all I could think of was that it must be something like that. And then they never spoke of it again. So the unrolling and revealing of what the camps are came about largely through television. There was a survivor in the family, but again, mysterious. He, he wasn't in a camp because he had managed to escape. This is Michael. This is Michael, my father's cousin. Again, what happened to his relatives? We don't know. Ended up in the camps. So all that confusion, I was thinking, well, kids look at Holocaust, but they read, obviously, when Hitler stole Pink Rabbit, they look at the Anne Frank diary. Of course, that's fantastic. But it's like confusing. And then usually year nine, you do the unit on the Holocaust, which is fine, but it's not very immediate. And I mean, Anne Frank is, you know, wonderful, wonderful book, but it's not about death. It's about life. And that's why it's so tragic. It's framed by death. And then again, when Hitler stole Pink Rabbit, I mean, 
it's an incredible book, but it's, isn't it brilliant and odd and weird how we escape? But again, it's not about the Holocaust. It's about a sort of around it or because of it. And so I wanted to, as it were, tell this story as, I, as it unfolded to me and what actually happened right up to the gates of Auschwitz. So you're writing uh, a book on the Holocaust uh, primarily for a younger audience, although it certainly appeals to, to older people as well, to adults as well. Um, and you've got your younger self in mind. Did you find there was a sort of tension in terms of wanting to educate about what happened, what took place, but also perhaps not wanting to convey the full, the full horror? That's something you work out with editors in the children's book world. You might have a sense that you want to say something and they might say, well, shall we leave that to that kind of book or this kind of book? Um, and so we wanted to be factual and to say things. Um, I think I've used the word gassed um, and, um, in the book, but without going into the daily details of Auschwitz, Belsen, Treisenstadt, you know, uh, going into the details of what went on in these camps, uh, it, what I thought needed to be told more was the way in which the Jews in my family, they were essentially refugees and were persecuted and the way they were rounded up. So I wanted to get the banality, as Hannah Arendt called it, the banality of evil. I wanted to get right down to the detail of, in the case of Martin Rosen, of four cops knocking on his door and just saying, with us, why? Uh, because he's Jewish. Mm. Now, there isn't any other reason. He, he hasn't done anything. I mean, it wasn't as if he was in the resistance or anything. I mean, there's no indication he was. He's just in a house in Western France and he's picked up. How does that happen? Well, because there's an instruction that he should. So I wanted to get that kind of detail. Um, and I, I will definitely admit, if it's a point of admission, which is that the context for me wanting to make that clear is the extent to which these things, in the, certainly in the case in Western Europe, was done so legally. What happened in Eastern Europe is slightly different, but in, in France, every Jew who was... Many of the Jews who were arrested were arrested legally, and that's in a way what's terrifying, and that goes on in the context, like a huge jump, Windrush, mm. was done legally. Now, obviously, Windrush, they're not exterminating, honestly, but they're shipping people out and people have died, and all that was done because pieces of paper were handed from me to you, to him, to her, and somebody who's lived in this country for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years or whatever, you're now getting on a boat and you're going somewhere. That had terrible, terrible ripples as I was writing this, and so I wanted to stress that idea of the legality of those arrests in France. When we talk about the law, we usually mean that to mean what's right. In fact, in French, it's the same word, le droit. You talk about things being right and legal, and, it's, and so on. Um, so I wanted to show that. Yeah, yeah. that's really interesting you bring up this idea of, um, well, Hannah Arendt's idea of the vanity of evil. So I was going to ask, you describe this, uh, there's a report of your great uncle Martin who is arrested by four, as you mentioned, four uh, French policemen who sort of acting on behalf of the Nazis. And you sort of ponder afterwards, you know, after they've made this arrest, then they've kind of effectively sanctioned possibly the murder and the deportation and murder of your great uncle. You ask, what did they do then? Have breakfast? What did they say to their families? And it almost seems as though 
you're more interested in the morality of these French policemen who were sort of doing the bidding of, of the Nazis than perhaps, you know, the, uh, the, the sort of obvious cruelty of the Nazis themselves. Yeah. In a funny sort of way, it, it, bothered, it bothered me. I mean, you can park the horror of what the Nazis were doing and you can park it in this genocidal, crazed, manic, getting rid of, entlersing, final solution stuff. You can park it for a moment and then look at who collaborated. And you can look at the chain of command that comes down from Paris to the local security police, to the local administrators called the prefects, the sub-prefects, down to the local policemen. And you think, well, that's what enabled it to happen. The Nazis didn't want to look like they were doing genocide in France. They didn't mind about Poland and Russia. They didn't mind the genocide. They didn't care about that. But in France, they wanted to make it look as if they were just getting rid of communists and troublemakers and foreigners and all these words they used about Jews in France. Uh, but they didn't want to because they were genuinely afraid, it looks like, from the documents of American and British uh, repercussions, especially into 44, when they thought, blimey, we're not going to win this thing. So what are they going to do to us? They thought they might get away with Poland and Russia, uh, because who cares about them? I mean, in their racism towards all mm. peoples of Eastern Europe, not just Jews. Uh, but they were anxious about that, that they, there would be repercussions. So they wanted everything to be right and proper and to say, oh, well, we got rid of these people because they shouldn't have been there. And they thought, perhaps, that they, they would get away with it. It appalls me. I mean, I know French villages very, very well. I've, I've been going to them since I was four or five. I know what they're like. I know what they feel like. I've, you know, sat and talked to policemen. The policemen that I knew as a kid were policemen who may have been involved in any of these things. So I have a kind of sort of horror. And there's a village we go to quite regularly in France. And the mayor told me that she was going through the archives. This has nothing to do with my family. She was going through the archives in her village. <coughs> and um, she found exactly the same piece of paper that is in my book, namely, you will now go and arrest all the Jews. And she thought, well, actually, in this little part of France, there were no Jews. There really weren't. I mean, I know it may sound odd, but it was, there were just no Jews in that part of the countryside. And the mayor has sent out a letter to everybody saying, if you know of any Jews, tell me. And she was, she was saying, thinking, isn't that incredible? He didn't need to send it. He really didn't. He could have just pretended yeah. that he hadn't seen it, this idea. So it's that kind of official pursuing of something and how horrified she was. And I remember thinking, wow, this stuff is sort of still there in the French countryside. They know who picked who off. So it feels very near and awful and quite a struggle for the last 10 years going through this stuff and thinking this place that and this language I can speak and and so on so all that's been sort of I won't say traumatic it would be silly but certainly disturbing yeah disturbing yeah, yeah. and on that note of the sort of yeah, the, the, the difficulty in all this research the personal difficulty the book is sort of interspersed with poems that appear at key moments and you describe them as special rooms where I can think slowly about what happened. So why was it important for you to have these rooms during your research? 
I guess if you've got my kind of background, then education gets divided up in your head. You know, you have factual stuff mm. um, and you have science, you have sciencey stuff, you have history stuff, you have geography stuff. So you have this sense of the empirical. And so an enormous amount of my effort in this was to verify and corroborate. I've got a document, this name, does it quite tally with that name? Is this date, this place, oh, somewhere they've said Kosnovica, is that because the Nazi got it wrong? And in fact, it's Kroznovica, all this stuff. So all that training that I did at school and university to get facts right, that's in a sense in that box. And when you do that, there's no, you think there's no point maybe, or I might've thought, well, I'm not going to interrupt that flow very much by going, oh, wow, um, I wonder what he might have thought when in actual fact I have another place where I do that, which is called writing poems. So I can do a little bit of that, but I don't want to interrupt the factual flow too much. But if I could have a sort of inset where I can do that speculation, what were you thinking, great uncle Oscar? What were you thinking as you were on that awful cattle truck, and it is a cattle truck. What were you thinking? What did you see through the slats? That's not empirical, that's speculation. And so the nice thing about poetry is it, it can be a space where you speculate. You, you, don't, you never have to come to a conclusion, because you really don't. I mean, you know, you can wander lonely as a cloud, you can go and look at daffodils, and then you don't have to come to a conclusion other than the fact that when you lie on your couch, if you're William Wordsworth, and you can then contemplate these things and leave it to the audience to decide. So that's a nice room to be in where you can invite people to speculate within the framework of the empirical. So if you separate it, then in a way, the speculation doesn't infect the empirical and make people doubt it. Mm. I mean, one of the criticisms of Elie Wiesel's The Night is that it's a piece of poetry. It's, po it's basically like a long prose poem. And of course, people say, that's not factual. Now I might say, well, I'm not bothered about that, but then that's because I come from that end of things. But people who want to know, I reckon that everything that's empirical in my book, I can justify and say, well, I've got the document and I can show that. And the speculations, I go, well, no, of course that's not true. That's me saying, I wonder if. Mm. And it's sort of perhaps a nice way of responding to, you know, you mentioned children are educated in a very sort of empirical way, particularly on this topic, and they might have a module on it um, in their GCSEs. And then you descend into these sort of arguments about whether it did or didn't happen. So the sort of the poetry is a sort of rejoinder to that. It's a way of... Yes. And also, I mean, you, you have to say, do you want children to wonder what it felt like? Yeah. Now, obviously, there's huge debates within history about this. Some people say, well, no, it doesn't matter. Who cares? I think that's a valid historical question to ask. Mm. It doesn't mean you say, let's forget about the facts of it, but surrounded by the facts, imbued with the facts, ask the question, what did they feel? What did they feel like? Because you can have a history of feeling, you can have a history of subjectivity. There's nothing wrong with that. Where it goes wrong is if you so make it up that there really isn't any basis for it. But also I, I quite like the idea you keep the things a bit apart and allow the one to inform the other. In the book, you retrace the, retrace the journey of uh, your great uncle Oscar um, and great aunt Rachel, and you make a sort of heartbreaking discovery um, that they were due to escape from the Nazis, but the boat they were due to take, um, they, they missed it, and unfortunately, um, they were deported to Auschwitz in the end. Um, 
Was any of this known to your family, family previously before you made this discovery? And were, and were you able to, to tell anyone, sort of anyone who's still alive in your family about this revelation? Right. As far as I know, nobody knew it at all. Well, first of all, the letters themselves, these four letters, had been suppressed within the family. They weren't actually held by a Jewish relative. They were held by somebody who was married to marry, you know, one of those. And he had kept them. No Jewish relative in America had kept them. He had, as if saying, well, you may not want this stuff to be known, but I will keep it. And when I die, they'll be found. When my oldest relative died, that was my father's cousin in America, he died aged 101. And in 2017, it's this recent, all right, bear in mind I have no images for the 30 years that I've thought about this, or if you count the whole of my life, no images of these missing relatives. Just thought, well, why would there ever be any pictures? You know, it's impossible. And um, my second cousin went into the house and there was a locked closet, as they say in America, cupboard. He opened it up and there was a box inside that was sealed up and on it it said family photos. He opened it and in here are the families of and the pictures of all the very nearly all the uncles and aunts who were killed in the Holocaust. So that's the Polish ones and the French ones with messages on the back and their names and the regiment uh, that Oscar, one of the uncles had fought in, uh, which was an Austro-Hungarian um, regiment. So he fought on the side of the Germans, little messages on the back. And now, of course, suddenly this raised a whole question. Why, when I sat in that room where the cupboard was, the closet, had this cousin Ted, my father's cousin Ted, not said, and I've got some pictures. So now we have this terrible thing for this generation. What did they know? What didn't they know? What were they ashamed? And of course, I mean, how could you know as an American that it was, they really were going to practice genocide? You, of course you know about pogroms. Of course you know about persecution. You know, it's in your family. People have talked about fleeing from Poland, fleeing from Russia, fleeing from Romania, Czechoslovakia, wherever. And of course people threatened, oh, we'll get rid of all the Jews or whatever. But were, were they really any, anyone going to do that? So I think come 45, the horror for Americans and British Jews that they did mean it and they had done it. Mm. And I don't think we, we can know what that felt like mm. for my parents' generation. So I was born 46, so my parents born 1919. So that generation of parents and who had brothers, sisters, cousins, grandparents even uh, in Europe we can't know what the Brits and American Jews thought. I mean, they can say it, but then some of them may feel so guilty about it that they think they could have done or whatever. And as I say in the book, I found online this incredible thing that in 1939, that cousin I've been talking about, his sister Olga, who I had also spoken to and said, what do you know? And she'd said nothing. Mm. Uh, she had actually tried to get Oscar out in 1939, before the war started, and I don't know, but I mean, it's her request to the America, to the US immigration authorities. And she hadn't told me that. 
again, presumably because she couldn't. I, I would doubt whether she forgot that. I would think that would be like printed on her brain that she had tried and either failed or maybe Oscar didn't want to come or whatever. Um, he had only recently married, so maybe he thought, well, I couldn't come with my wife as well or something like that. Um, so there is a whole nexus of feelings and thoughts for that generation, generation before me, uh, in Britain and America, for whom this stuff is pretty awful. And I've kind of touched on it and left it hanging in the air a bit. You just mentioned your, your great uncle Oscar, who was possibly turned away from America. And there were thousands of Jews who were escaping, who were trying to escape the Nazis who were turned away from the USA and, and Britain and elsewhere. Um, and I wonder what you make of moving you know, forward to today, the recent erasure of the Dubs Amendment from the, the Brexit bill and I guess the general sort of anti-immigration trajectory of British politics now, if there are any... Well, let's, well, let's start with Dubs. I mean, he is quite extraordinary. I mean, this is somebody who could have just happily retired. He was a Labour politician. Um, he didn't need to carry on. And he is just... He, I have heard him on the radio. I've never met him. Just the sheer persistence, you know, this is a man who could have just quietly done as Voltaire says, you know, just grow your garden, il faut cultiver son jardin, that he could have quite happily, and the fact that he's taken up the issue of Syrian children and other refugees, and obviously, as we know from his own background, he is um, kinder transport from what used to be Czechoslovakia, isn't he? Um, you don't need to carry on, you don't need to do it, you just may say, thanks very much, thank you, you lovely British people, you looked after me. Uh, and leave it at that. So first of all, just to Alf, I just think, amazing. It just, I uh, so take my, I mean, what can I say, pay tribute to him for, for being like that. And he has he has been the person who has, you know, he's, he's given a, a signal, a warning signal. He's saying, look, you know, these children are like I was. You, you, you say you're sympathetic, you say, you know, wasn't Nicholas Winton and these other people, weren't they wonderful because, and wasn't Britain lovely for being so nice to the Jews? We can come back to that. Um, and, uh, and he's saying, well, hang on a minute. And then if you put that in the context of the whole issue of asylum seekers, refugees, migrants, the whole issue of the way it's been handled as part of Brexit, it didn't have to be, but it was, the way it was handled with Brexit, then you feed in the Windrush, and then we feed in these more recent statements being made by people like Priti Patel and so on, a mixture of sneering, hinting, who are they going for next? What's, what were they saying about travellers and, and Roma people? You know, said in these sort of vague phrases, um, you know, and, and even when you've had the sort of weird thing of someone like Priti Patel trying to sort of pull rank by saying, I don't need to be told by someone from the North London metropolitan elite about migrants. And you go, just hang on a minute. Something is cooking in the way in which there are these little signals being given off by different parts of the government about migrants, about people they describe in these different vague ways that it's not clear at all What's the status of people who are EU citizens, not yet Brits? Don't know whether they want to be Brits or not. 
who've been working here for five, 10, 20 years, always maybe more, 30 years in some cases, do they have settled status? What will happen to them? And indeed, what will happen to the Brits in Europe? Because there's bound to be a tit for tat thing will happen. I mean, it does. So suddenly, nationality, I mean, it's never been that stable anyway. So don't let's have any illusions about that. But suddenly, nationality is very wobbly for many people. And I have to say, it does remind me of Vichy France. I mean, it, it, not Poland, not, not Germany, but Vichy France, in which the status of people were all these subclassifications. Were you born abroad? Are you naturalized? Were you born in France? Who were your parents? All this stuff. And it feels as if somehow or other there's something cooking where they very much want to identify and use this phrase of the far right and use it in somewhere or another of the so-called indigenous word. And you think, oh my God, is this how people are thinking? And the answer is yes, they bloody are. I mean, it's a, it's a very, very febrile, very volatile, that's what's the word volatile, not febrile, but very volatile moment really. And it could go any way, really could. So the Democratic presidential candidate, Bernie Sanders, talks about the, his family's experiences of the Holocaust as being sort of foundational to his own politics and, and his Judaism. Uh, is that true for you at all? I think one of the foundation things of my politics, it's not so much the Holocaust, you've got to go back earlier. It was the fight against the fascists that my parents talked about. So, you know, they were brought up in London's East End so they were face to face with Mosley and a simultaneous thing, which I don't think I fully appreciated until I talked to one of their friends who used to go by the name of Sam Russell. And he said that as 36, 37, 38 unfolded, we had a sense in the Jewish East End that we were fighting Mosley here. There were fascists in Spain and fascists in Germany, that these three things were sort of swirling around in our lives, that they thought their struggle was threefold, that when Guernica happened, that they felt that bombing in Spain by German bombers, incidentally, killing Spanish civilians, um, that Mosley was attacking them on the streets, that Nazism had happened and Jews were being persecuted in Germany and clearly Hitler had the intention of invading East and all this was known, even though the papers pretended it wasn't happening, that all this was like a great weight on particularly Jewish left-wingers in places like London's East End. And I think that was formative for me because my parents talked about it over and over and over again. It was the most powerful thing in their formation. And this was the way Sam, uh, Sam Russell put it, was that, and when we complained, when we protested about the bombs landing on Guernica, we said it's the same bombs landing on us a few years later. And the writer Bernard Copps, Jewish writer who lived in East End, a bit younger than my parents, he's got an incredible description as a teenager sitting in his bedroom in the East End, thinking that Hitler was bombing him because he was a Jew. Now, of course he wasn't, but I just, it's in uh, World is a Wedding. It's a beautiful, beautiful memoir that Bernard wrote. And I, I remember being quite struck by that, 
that though as a boy you're wrong, but in a sense it was right that the kind of total global intention of the Nazis focused on one boy in his bedroom in London's East End, but in a way there is a rightness about, so we're back with that thing of what's empirical and what's emotional, that it's wrong empirically but right emotionally. And so I suppose, I won't say it was the Holocaust that f was formed how I think, it was much more the sense of Nazism and fascism coming and then added on to that is the effect it had, but it was the formation and the struggle that is the bit that probably has informed me. What, what would you say are the most sort of animating elements of your Jewish identity? I guess the first thing I think about when I think I am Jewish or think about Jewish things, I do think of my parents. And I think what kind of lives did they lead in London's East End and how they engaged with Jewish life in that place that was laughingly, jokingly called a ghetto, but of course it wasn't a ghetto, so I have to be quite careful about that, but where Jews migrated to in London's East End and how they talked about it and made my childhood and my teenage life, and indeed my dad went on living till 2008, made my life rich with these Jewish perceptions you talk about a sort of Jewish way of looking at things or a Jewish perception, a lot of people think that means that maybe you're in shul and the rabbi speaks. And of course, absolutely, that I'm not going to deny that at all. I'm absolutely right. And, you know, I used to listen to Rabbi Blue. I even listened to Jonathan Sachs on the radio uh, very attentively and think, well, yes, I can hear those ways in which they're saying, well, this is what it says in the Torah and this is what it says, um, this is what we say at Pesach and so on. So. But in my family, that Jewish perception came through really out of originally what you might call Polish Yiddishkeit, the Yiddish culture of Poland and the ways in which they lived that, but also through their activism and through those radical beliefs and understandings they had in the 1920s and 30s, but also through humor and through food and through a way of talking about life. Maybe you could say it's enjoying paradox, enjoying irony in a particular kind of a way, and drawing attention to Jews in a way that wasn't just simply, oh, one of our boys did it, which of course is totally legitimate, particularly from an oppressed minority, to say, oh, isn't it amazing, you know, Frankie Vaughan is, is on the telly. My parents did a bit of that, but they were actually as proud of historical figures and drawing attention to Einstein or to Kafka. And, and that, though it's not religious, it's, it's cultural, it's ethno, and it's ethnic. And so, you know, my father would sit there maybe and say, Isaac Babel's stories, they're incredible. And he would read me Isaac Babel's stories. He read me Catch-22 and Catcher in the Rye. These are both Jewish authors, right? When he read me Catch-22, I would say he imbued it with his Jewishness. And indeed, there are whole chunks of the book, you know, Lieutenant Shyskopf, what the hell kind of a name is Lieutenant Shyskopf? It's Lieutenant Shyskopf's name, sir. So and so, you know, Clevenger had the facts at his fingertips. All that, or indeed, I can remember him reading me Catcher in the Rye, that the, the sort of the ironic position of Holden Caulfield within that sort of dead straight white school, the fact that he's an outsider and senses it. And, you know, I can hear my, my dad could speak American because he was in the American army, even though he had a Brit voice. So he could do all this. And 
I have, looking back on it, that was my Jewish education. Now, of course, if you were a rabbi sitting there, you'd go, well, that's not Jewish education. But I would say, well, it is in its own way. Secular Jewish life is very, very strong in America, less strong in this country. And I was made to feel part of that through this way of talking, through use of Yiddish, used a lot of Yiddish, my mum uh, as well, um, and also a lot of jokes. But more than that, so you might say, as some have said, that the two main streams of Jewishness, some may say Judaism, that has run through Jewish life, one is very legal-minded, the halachic tradition, and the other is more interested in story, in anecdote, which is known as the agadic tradition. Mm. Well, you know, am I a lawyer? No, I'm not. Um, what am I? A storyteller. And so when I look at my father and my mother, they were both incredible storytellers. And they would turn everyday life into a story and embellish it and add bits to it and then discuss the meaning of it. Well, this is classic, what's called parabolic thinking. These are the, what the parables in the Bible are classic Jewish stories. So those traditions, my parents were very much carriers of that. Now, the problem is, what do we rate in terms of literature and culture? We always rate the written, and it's very hard to rate what you might call traditional folk cultures. Yes, uh, Billy Bragg's written about this. So, you know, Billy Bragg, for example, he's written about the fact that every Sunday, all the relatives came over, they rolled up the carpets, people sang songs and did dancing. It's not written down anywhere. But that's a crucial part of his life that he inherited from generations of family shindigs and singing. So I was quite interested when I interviewed him about that. And I sort of thought, well, that's what I, that was, that's the same with me, but it was my dad's, and mom, my mum and dad's storytelling. So I see these different strands, one minute Kafka, one minute my dad, mum and dad storytelling, one minute Yiddish speaking, another minute debating whether we are or aren't going to have chulant and how Bubba made chulant and my mum going, I'm not going to make chulant and them having a row about it. Um, and so, and also being carriers of family history mm. and sharing all that. So I feel all that feels to me very, very Jewish. Mm. Um, if somebody else tells me it isn't, then I say, well, you know, could you not oppress me, please? You know, could you not tell me that what I'm doing, mm. you know, this is my ethnicity. Yeah. And um, I'm very, very happy with it. Um, and I'm fascinated to investigate it and look at it. You know, one of the most moving moments I had recently was going to the Kafka Museum in Prague. Overwhelming. I mean, just his situation and his passion and his difficulties um, as effectively a Jewish Czech person in this conflux of cultures of German and Czech culture there in that moment in Prague and his own struggles with his health and so on. And um, this was very moving for anybody, but there was a sort of moving in a Jewish way mm. because his crisis was in part a Jewish crisis. How Jewish am I? Am I? Do I identify with my father? Do I identify with the Czechs? Do I identify with German? He wrote in German, didn't write in Yiddish, he wrote mm. in German all that, and I find that fascinating. So there is a way in which you can say <coughs> that one of the paradoxes and ironies of Jewish life is, well, what are you? Mm. I mean, 
but I mean, you try and explain that to someone, or being Jewish is walking around going, what am I? And they go, well, that's not an identity. Well, actually it is, and it's perfectly all right. I mean, to cite someone who's not Jewish, John Keats, he invented a thing called negative capability, where you can be content to be in a situation in which you don't know, but it's okay to live with it. And if you take the Jewish psychoanalyst, Adam Phillips, he doesn't think his job is to cure people. It's not the talking cure, but to enable people to live with the thing they've got, which is your life, your paradoxes, your pains, your sorrows, your happinesses, your contradictions, but to live with it so it doesn't destroy you. So if you say, well, one of the things about being Jewish is to live with the paradox of who you are. Mm. That's actually also Jewish. It sounds like, as I say to me, a little bit like Keats talking about negative capability. Mm. Maybe it's negative capability. What do I care? <laughs> yeah. And finally, your book ends with a, a tentatively hopeful prediction. Um, you say the, the world will dance one day. What, uh, in your mind, does the world dancing look like? Well, <laughs> interesting, yes, because, you know, we're beset not just with um, how we treat each other, but it's also how we treat the environment. Now, this is new in my life. So if you think I'm 70, nearly 74, and we used to talk about, oh, I don't know, pesticides or the ozone layer, but the idea now that instead of me being cruel to you because I'm a soldier and I've invaded your country, or me being cruel to you because I'm the boss and you're the worker and I don't think you should have any money or you, know, you can clear off because I'm closing this factory, all that stuff, uh, or oppress you because you're a different color skin or any of this sort of stuff, that that sits in a sort of understanding in my mind and now we've reached a point where the kind of craziness of the system has so taken it out on the environment in this sphere that we've got to live on this tiny little place in the corner of the universe um so this idea of the world might dance or that that you know we might have a better world it now has a whole other meaning probably even from when i wrote it where i probably meant that we can close these horrible concentration camps, we can stop having wars, which was the sort of idea behind the poem, but now it means, well, we've got to do something socially, collectively, and caring for each other and for all human beings in order that the earth, in that sense, can survive. So it's in a funny sort of way, um, the the total politics of how we live has caught up with the poem in a way that I didn't originally intend, but then poems and stories can do that because you keep getting people on the television say on the radio saying, oh yes no we work for, I work for BP Shell and whatever and uh, no we're going to sort it out and people coming on yeah no capitalists are going to sort it out because it's going to be profitable to be green, and you go is it is that is that going to do it because it's never been like that before. Um, you know, because the prime reason why you're in business is to make money. Um, and if you're going to make money by not looking after the environment, well, then you won't. So big problems and, um, you know, but full of hope as always. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you for sharing your thoughts so openly on what is a very sort of personal subject that was really illuminating. Thanks very much. Thank you. If you want to be the first to know when we record interviews like this, subscribe to our channel, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, check out our website. You